2: Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative this morning. We have two guests today, Trevor Claiborne uh, from Kentucky and Malik Yakini from Detroit, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. So I'm out, I'm out in San Francisco this morning. Uh, they say it's warm out here. It's 85 degrees in San Francisco, so it's not too bad. How's the weather in Detroit, Malik?
0: When I went out this morning it was fifty nine. They claim it's gonna get up to eighty today. We'll see. Maybe by noon it'll be about eighty. But we're definitely in the decline of summer. We are rushing towards the equinox and the weather is short.
2: <laughs> what about you, Trevor, in Kentucky? So we're we're at seventy five
1: today, which is a is a relief. We we've been in the eighty eighties and nineties over the last few weeks and so this is a, a welcomed relief.
2: And one of the reasons I start off with weather, because it's so important to food and the growing of food. So, Trevor, what's it, what's it been like in Kentucky in terms of producing food?
1: You know, so small-scale producers, we've had our challenges this year, just with the uh, fluctuations in weather. But I, I would say if it was a 10, I would say we did about a seven and a half, eight 8 this year. Uh, Large-scale producers, unfortunately, uh, haven't been faring as well. Uh, just because of some of the supply chain issues, uh, obviously with the cost of diesel and other, you know, expenses on running larger scale farms. And so I, I'll say that we've had better years, you know, within the agricultural sector, but as far as the urban production
2: is 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 maintained. Urban has maintained. Malik in Detroit, I know you have a seven-acre farm in Detroit, which I visited maybe six years ago or so. Matter of fact, I wanted to get a plate and go pick me some greens and make a salad right there. What's the farming like in Detroit now with the weather particularly?
0: We've had a number of challenges this year. One of the big challenges we've had is flooding on parts of our farm. And so there's parts of the farm that normally we plant in late April or May that didn't really dry out until maybe a month ago. And so it's changed how we have to use part of the space as we're responding to both the changes in climate, but also part of the problem that we're having is that the land adjacent to us a few years ago, the stewards of that land cut down about two acres of 100-year-old trees, and all those trees uptook a lot of water. And so by removing those trees, that water has to go somewhere, and a lot of that's running onto the land that we farm on. So we're learning how to, how to adapt to that, and that's been the main challenge that we're having. But in spite of that, we, we, we have abundant production this year. We're producing a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of produce. Our bigger problem is really not figuring out how to sell it all okay. and, you know, how to, how to move it quickly and because we don't have adequate refrigeration at our farm, so we have to sell pretty quickly after we harvest. And uh, that's the biggest challenge that we're having.
2: Okay. So, Malik, you're the director of the D- Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, my four
0: what- Yeah, I am. For another year and a half or so, I'm trying to retire, but yes, I am.
2: You're too young to retire. What are you talking about, man? What are you talking
0: about? Man, <laughs> uh, young. <laughs> I think the other brother in the car, he might be young. I don't think I qualify as young. Thank you for thanking of being
2: that way. Yeah. Well, I'll be 75 in October. Next month, I'll be 75, and you ain't there. You don't look at that's a play. yeah, that's black, and Trevor, the kid <laughs> in Kentucky. <laughs> Trevor, you are the co-founder of Black Soil, our Better Nature. What what is that about? What's that?
1: It's a Black for, uh, Soil. So we actually celebrated our five year anniversary this year, and so we're uh, uh, my partner Ashley and myself. We're the co- co-founders of Black Soil, an uh, agritourism company focused around uh, black agriculture. Uh, reconnecting Kentuckys with their root, Kentuckians with their roots in agriculture. Uh, one of our goals, uh, so professionally, I work at Kentucky State University as a small farms agent. You know, as, as a land-grant institution, our mission is to serve underserved or limited resource farmers. So obviously, black farmers fall within that. And so in Kentucky, just to give a little background answer what black soil is about, and so out of 75,000 producers in this state, less than 1.3 percent, are classified as African-American, less than 1.3% out of 75,000. Kentucky is historically an agricultural state. So what happens, uh, I guess if I can say this on a professional end, when it comes to resource allocation, when it comes to getting information to people uh, in a timely manner, where they're not waiting all year to uh, get something that's necessary for their uh, production. It it becomes a it it becomes a contest for the limited resource farmers to get access to the equipment or information with the mainstream farmers I'll call it, and so the purpose of Black Soil was to take a a, a prescriptive and intentional approach to uh you know not being radical but really focus conversations and open up markets for the black farmers or as many black I'll say black farmers in Kentucky as we could, and so that started with something as simple as farm tours. And so Kentucky, I've uh, gone places outside of Kentucky that assume we don't wear shoes here. <laughs> we do. But, uh, the earth, you know, the goal of black soil, we realize that there's tens of thousands. In Lexington, we have 300,000 people that, are, that don't go. We assume that people have been on farm tours. I know in Lexington, we have a population of about 40,000 what we call black people. And so out of that, our goal was, now, how can we, over time, reconnect these people, uh, get them to go do farm tours? And so we'll set up farm-to-table dinners where they're able to – and we can put the farmer as the star of the show because a lot of these farmers, if you go to your uh, grocery stores, you're not going to see pictures of those farmers. If you look at publications, you're not going to see pictures of these farmers depicted as leaders. Every once in a while, you'll see a tokenized version, but, you know, to really – give these people the honor that they deserve as producers. You know, the goal of Black Soil, as my grandfather would say, keep it simple, stupid, was to make these farmers a superstar. And what better way to do that than uh, farm-to-table dinners? You know, the food, it's uh, its actually a spiritual connection. And so from then, we started that in 2017. Uh, we've done uh, over 50 farm tours now, uh, built a formidable network. And so actually, when COVID hit, uh, it opened up the opportunity for us to do, uh, sell, sell CSA subscriptions, okay. and so to date, uh, we we have more than 500 uh, customers, and we have 250 uh, CSA subscribers.
2: Well, so, Trevor, uh, I, I I get your excitement, okay, and your enthusiasm for this work. I want to go to Malik here for a minute, though, and talk to us about the Detroit Black Community Food Net Security Network, and and why is security in that title.
0: The Detroit Black Community Food Security Network started in 2006, and even though our name is currently Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, we are trying to change our name. In fact, we're waiting on a vote in a couple of weeks from our membership affirming that our name will be the Detroit Black Community Food Sovereignty Network. And so maybe I'll answer your question by explaining the difference in those two concepts. So food security basically means that people are not hungry. That people are getting enough calories each day to sustain their lives, and that's important. But what we're striving for is something much larger. For that, and that is that we think that in black communities, and frankly in any community, the people in that community should have some control in shaping the system that provides their food. It's not just the question of getting enough calories. If that were the only question, then we, we would be happy when Walmart moves into a community because it provides a store where people can go and get food. And it presumably, if they have the, the money for it, then they, you know, can be food secure. But clearly having more Walmarts or more Walgreens or whatever the case may be, is not the solution to building self-determination in black communities. And so this larger issue of food sovereignty has to do with communities deciding what they eat how that food is produced, what their relationship is to the land, and very importantly, profiting from the money they spend uh, on food. For example, in the city of Detroit, where we have about uh, 645,000 people, 80% of whom are black, there's no black owned grocery store. And so people spend food dollars prior with an ethnic group of Indians who own most of the stores in Detroit, and the vast majority of that money is extracted from our community. And so food sovereignty also requires that that profit be circulated within the community to build power and resilience and that we're not just wealth extraction stations for uh, other ethnic groups to come in and, and suck out profits. So although we are currently Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, we will soon be Detroit Black Community Food Sovereignty Network.
2: So I've got this new term, wealth subtraction station.
0: Well, extraction, extract,
2: abstract,
0: they must extract, like you extract something, you pull it out. So we have other ethnic groups all across the United States who come into our communities and extract wealth because we have not because of two reasons. One, the infrastructure that we had in black communities, black business districts were largely intentionally destroyed. Uh, that's the case in, in Detroit in D.C., in Atlanta, in Chicago, many times freeways will run through those business districts and destroy them. So now we find ourselves in a place where the black community doesn't have much capacity to meet our own needs. And so other ethnic groups come in and they see that as an opportunity to profit from. And they come to our communities and extract millions and millions of dollars every day.
2: So Trevor, I'm sure you haven't seen that in Kentucky, right? Or tell us how you've seen that in Kentucky.
1: And so uh, so we were discussing this a little bit earlier before we started. So in Kentucky, we were like the fourth uh, most impoverished state in the country. And so what happens, we actually have one of the largest percentages of white poverty. And so, I, you know, I don't like putting people in crayon boxes, but at the same time, you know, we can't avoid or look away from our own situation. Like Mr. Yockney said, we're losing millions and nationally billions from an industry that our ancestors mastered, you know, the wealth of this country is built on the back of our ancestors, and so to find that we get less than 0.4% of revenue generated in a trillion-dollar industry of agriculture is a problem. Uh, we're introduced to this concept, lift yourself up by the bootstrap, and so when people take initiative to do so, uh, to answer your question, uh, one of the one of the concerns we have here in Kentucky, we have a rural population that is absolutely suffering from poverty. Uh, and I don't say that lightly. But then you also have urban areas such as Lexington, Louisville, and then Hopkinsville and other places in Western Kentucky that are suffering just as much. A hungry stomach doesn't have a color, and so one group of people, when it comes to resource allocations, if there is a million dollars granted to address this food security, it's almost become commonplace that ninety-nine percent of that that those resources are going to go to the rural, non-Black communities. And so once again, uh. You know, this is something we're dealing with. It's extraction. And I don't know if you're going to ask this, the Farmers of Color Act, for example, uh, that was presented last year.
2: Before you move on, we're going to have to take our first break. And so we can come back and talk about that. But when I was asking the question of extraction in Kentucky, it it was coal mining and tobacco. And that was another way in industries of just taking out the money, taking out the money, taking out the resources, and leaving people broke. Broke financially and broke physically, broke emotionally, broke mentally, and then you folks started using drugs. But we'll be right back, everybody, talking to Malik and Trevor. Please don't touch that dial. 1450 WOL, where information is power. Welcome back, everybody. This is Everything Co-op, and um, Vernon Oaks here, who is, has the pleasure of talking to Malik and Trevor. Malik is in Detroit, and Trevor is in Kentucky. Before we took the break, uh, Trevor, you started to talk about the Farmers of Colors Act. Would you continue that conversation?
1: So briefly, to kind of give a context of some of the dynamics, because and then I also want to make a distinction between gardening and agriculture. So there is a large industry of agriculture and garden is more local production. We'll touch on that later. The Farmers of Color Act was supposed to uh, be reparative justice or de- we'll call it debt relief for farmers of color. Uh, this was actually passed last year, last March, and it was touted as a success that was gonna make $4 billion available to farmers of color and, unders- and underserved. And so when you read the fine print, uh, if you were from a foreign country, a refugee qualified for it, uh, white women, uh, immigrant populations, uh, Native American, and once again not being disparaging of any group, but the verbiage on this particular legislation, they use the uh, discrimination against Black farmers historically in North America to get resources for other groups. Uh, to date, not a penny of debt relief has been allocated. But I use that situation to make a case of a lot of times our, our very real struggle, And we're just talking about food security right now, you know, not even to get into politics. And I agree with uh, Brother Yachtini, food sovereignty. You know, this isn't a question of, hey, can you give me something? We're we're wanting to take uh, initiative to do for self. And so obviously nothing operates for free. And so when it comes to the resources that taxpayers are are contributing to, these are some of those dynamics that producers are dealing with.
2: Okay. And, And Malik, this is Farmers of Color Act affect you at all in your production in Detroit?
0: Not so much. I mean, there may be some funds from that that we're eligible for, but I think the intent of that act was basically for larger rural farmers. And certainly there's a crisis of uh, facing black farmers and small-scale farmers in general in this country. And uh, But there's also a lot of pushback. In fact, the reality is we have a war going on between large-scale commercial agriculture that uses lots of chemicals and uh, chemical inputs and huge amounts of water and huge amounts of machinery and more small-scale sustainable agriculture, uh, which is oriented more towards people and the health of the planet. And so there's really a battle going on. And part of that battle is who gets those resources? Is it going to go to this more sustainable, earth-friendly style of farming, or are we going to continue to support these large corporations that control the global food system? And so that, you know, that's always the question. It's great that the money has been allocated, but it's, ultimately we have to see where it goes.
2: Okay. Okay. So what you had talked about earlier was extracting profits. And I do understand that you all have broken ground to start your own food co-op. So is that so that you can keep profits? What's the reason for starting a food co-op in Detroit?
0: There's many reasons. I mean, we're, we're of the mindset that black people should do as much for ourselves as we can, especially in those areas that are vital for our survival. It's ridiculous to, to, to have all of the things that are life-giving and life-saving that a community is dependent upon in the hands of people outside of that community. And for the most part, that's the situation that black people find ourselves in throughout this country. Other people control the politics and the politicians in our community. They control the cultural life within our community and they control the economics within our community. So we're pushing back against all of that. And so the Detroit Food Commons is designed to push back against all of that, with one factor being uh, slowing down at least the extraction of wealth. We don't expect it by creating a food co-op that we're going to stop the millions of dollars of bleeding that happens week, uh, weekly uh, in the city of Detroit food skate. But we will slow that down. And more importantly, we'll create an example that is rooted in what our ancestors did, which is that if we acknowledge that we're operating in an economic system that is hell-bent historically on keeping us out of the mainstream, and I would say it's still hell-bent in spite of whatever steps that we might see uh, by you know the Biden administration it's still for the most part hell bent on keeping us out of the mainstream economy and keeping wealth and the po- and power in the hands of people who are defined as white and, and and to acknowledge what brother trevor said not all white people have this wealth and power it's it's a, an elite even within the white community right most white people are exploited and oppressed as well right. um But given that we find ourselves in this situation, we need to do everything that we can do on our own accord to extract ourselves from that situation. That's not to say that we don't want help from the government or we don't want help from the corporate sector. But the primary impetus for changing our condition has to come from us. And so the Detroit People's Food Co-op, which is the grocery store that we're creating, and the Detroit Food Commons, which is the building that we're building to house the grocery store, and some other functions, is designed to stop that extraction of wealth in the community, to create an example of cooperative economics, to create an example of development, which is Black-led. We have two organizations, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network that I lead, and our development partner, Develop Detroit Incorporated, which is led by a Black woman Sonia Mays. Uh, So we have a Black-led development who's hired Black architects, a black general contractor. And so this is all very unusual, even in Detroit, which is the blackest city in North America. So we're trying to create examples on several levels of how we circulate wealth within our community, how we build power and resilience within our community and how we make our own decisions about what we need to solve the problems that exist in our community.
2: Okay, Malik, I get get that and I love it. Why a co-op?
0: Well, let me start by saying that we are anti-capitalist. and You're what capitalist? Uh, anti, Anti-capitalist. We think the system of capitalism is a terrible economic system for human beings and for the planet. Now, I know lots of people have bought into it and think it's the best thing since sliced bread, but we make no bones about it. We think it's a terrible system that is bad for the planet because it prioritizes profit. Above human well being, above the well being of the other animals and plants that we share the planet with, and the planet itself. It views the planet only in an extractive way, not as a living being that sustains our life in the way that African people and most indigenous people around the world have historically viewed it. But capitalism is also bad because it intersects with the system of white supremacy and it concentrates wealth and power. In the hands of people who are white, and while you know, I want to acknowledge as I did earlier that it's a small percentage of those people that the actual power is invested in. By association, there's some benefit that comes from the rest of the population that is also identified as white. And there's a lot that's been written about this. Is a book called "Cast" by Isabel Wilkerson that talks about the relationship between so-called race and economic standing in American society, and while it's true that there are many poor whites, it's also true that many of those uh, poor whites have still have access to things in society just as a result of their their white skin. And so, yes, we are. You know, actually, I forgot your question. Forgot
2: no, no, you. you, oh,
0: you, you rabbit You
2: answered it, though. You answered it. And it's why a co-op is so is anti-capitalist, but that still hasn't answered why a co-op.
0: Okay, good. Let me wrap that up. So within the context of a capitalist system where, again, wealth and power is concentrated. And when I say wealth and power, I mean things like, for example, even if you want to build something in your community, most of us don't have millions of dollars. So we have to go to financial institutions to borrow this money. And those financial institutions, have historical policies that although they might not mention discriminating by, by race, the the actual how it actualizes is, is black people have much less access to capital. And so that's a problem. So within the context of a system like that, the only way that we can galvanize our collective wealth and build institutions that benefit our communities collectively is by using the model of cooperatives that are cooperatively owned. Even if you have an individual black business, that doesn't ensure that the rest of the black community is going to benefit from that. Because that black business owner can take all the profits and buy a nice house and a nice car and see that their children go to college. But that doesn't mean the community is benefiting. A cooperative is owned by multiple people. For example, the Detroit People's Food Co-op has 1,650 members right now. And so any year that store is profitable, those profits are circulated among those members. So we think it's an important model, and we look at as we look at how we build local black economies.
2: Well, that's why the National Co-op Bank has sponsored this program for now nine years. October will be nine years to get that message out that you just talked about. Is how we and the
0: National Cooperative Bank. Let me see. Is is one of the finances of our project?
2: Okay. Yeah. Part of their mission is to help low income communities when they got started in the eighties and help co ops and their members so um but the message you just said uh, um, you captured it extremely well, Malik, and that is that given that capitalism and I went to school to learn capitalism, I got an m b a and that's all they taught that 's all they still teach. And I like what we can do individually, but it doesn't help the community. And it hurts the planet, as you said. We'll be right back to talk more about this. I want to get Trevor's view on this whole co-op view and capitalism. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial.
0: 1450
2: WOL, where information is power. Welcome back everybody. This is Everything Co-op with Vernon Oaks and we have Malik from Detroit and Trevor from Kentucky and before we took break Malik was talking about why a co-op and why not capitalism and how capitalism has really failed. has failed the, the planet but particularly it's failed black people in a major major way. So I was asked Trevor, have you worked at all between capitalism and cooperatism? Have you got into that world and also the world of the large farmers the fight with the small producers, either of those worlds? So
1: many hands make light work. The more people we have going working together, you can achieve whatever it is you're setting out to do. And so Brother Iacone brought up this fight between big ag and the local producers, and the implications are exactly what we see going on now with the grain shortages, because big ag is who's doing business internationally. So what happens is you have this behemoth of business going on that misses the, I'll say, small people such as ourselves. And so let there be a disruption in the planet, the whole system is disrupted. Uh, The small scale producers he was talking about are the ones who can effectively survive in whatever's going on because we're producing locally. And so he's talking about these resources. Are we going to continue to shovel resources to those that see only human beings as numbers on paper within this capitalism model? Are we going to learn lessons from the past and invest more locally to locally oriented producers? Locally oriented, this is where the co-op comes in. And so uh, 40% of most large agricultural operations are subsidized with government, you know, government money that black farmers typically don't get. And so and labor happens to be one of the largest costs when it comes to production. And so what happens is when we're talking about co-ops, uh, that's every bit of now how does the small, how does David fight this goliath of capitalism? And it takes a, it takes a unified effort. This doesn't mean everybody's kumbaya. It means you're you're finding people who have uh, skill sets, tradesmen. You're finding people who's able to leverage whatever skill they can bring to the table to make up for the uh, money that many times isn't accessible to these groups. And this actually worked well with some of the productions we uh, have here going on in Kentucky, as well as the Black Soil Network.
2: So you've dealt with this? <laughs> yes. Malik, do you have anything to add to that? What do you want
0: no, oh, no, brother's on point.
2: Okay. Um, so I I really like talking about the co-op world. This is everything co-op. Um, you're starting a food co-op. You said there's 1,650 members. <clears throat> so those members own the business. My when you
0: correct. And, and if I said members, forgive me, because we typically use the term member owners.
2: Okay. Okay. I like using the term member-owners. I usually just say members, because, and the members are owners. But member-owners really get it down. The, the member-owners, 1,650 of them. What's your goal? Do you have a goal of what it's going to take to sustain the business?
0: Yes, we have a goal of having 2,000 by the time we open the doors about a year from now. And we'll easily get there. We'll easily get to 2,000. Uh, one one of the things we're grappling with now is really how to pay higher wages to the staff. And so more members, of course, means more income for the co-op, and so we're going to continue past our 2000 goal so that we can try to pay uh, staff uh, better wages.
2: And do you have a sense when you say better wages, better than what?
0: Uh, better than the wages that are currently in our pro Okay, I'll put it like that. I don't want to really talk about the specifics of the performer on this on this call. No, okay. But we we want to center the well being of the people working in the co op, and want to be able to pay, pay them a livable wage. And I'll just say that we are not satisfied with the wages reflected in our performer, and we're trying to find ways to increase those.
2: Okay. So the reason I say better than most co ops, food co ops, will pay a dollar more than what a big box store would pay um, for their wages. And then people have more benefits uh, than the big box stores and co-ops. Um, so when I was saying more than, it was, is it more than $15 an hour, which people are talking about is minimum wage? Is it more than this other one? But I like you saying it's more than what you've got in your pro And you want to get, and that's one of the things I like about co-ops is how do you, Because the member owners, they get get the voice. They get the say. And then the way you can get more salary is by selling more and by making bigger profits. Therefore, you can pay people more money.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So presumably more member owners will result in more sales. Yes. Yes. But there's a tricky dynamic, too. Let me say that. Uh, we're in Detroit, which I said earlier, which is the blackest city in North America. And what I mean by that is that we have a larger percentage of the pop- of the total population that is black than any other major city in America. There are more black people in Brooklyn than, than there are in Detroit, so they could perhaps claim that as well. But we're 80 percent of the population, which is almost unheard of in any major city uh, throughout throughout the United States. So one of the dynamics we're faced with is that many people joining our co-op are young whites who maybe have heard about co-ops in the college town that they went to. And in the community that we're actually trying to serve, there's not a recent history of co-ops and so it's a harder sell. And so there's a racial dynamic even as we're increasing our numbers and we have to be intentional about organizing and recruiting in the black community to make sure that this thing doesn't go off mission and off track and that a bunch of well-meaning whites end up being the majority of the co-op members and deciding the direction that it goes in. And so we have to be very intentional and center uh, black people and center serving the black community, even as we're building our membership base.
2: So I thought what you were gonna go down and talk about is the poverty level or the income level of blacks in Detroit. Um, Kentucky is one of the poorest states in the union. I would imagine you have a lot of poverty in Detroit since the the car industry extract, extracted those jobs and took them overseas or wherever they took them, but took them out of Detroit. Um, so I thought you were going to say that a lot of Blacks that are there are poor and they may not be able to pay or may not be used to paying for nutritional food, fresh
0: Well, products. that's another factor. I wasn't headed down that road, but since you've mentioned it, I will. And, of course, that's something that we're concerned about because we are concerned about improving the quality of food that our community has access to. But usually that better quality food also costs more. And there are tremendous rates of poverty in Detroit. I don't know what they are today, but typically they hover at about 30%, 28, 29, 30% of the population being at or below the federal poverty level. So there are tremendous levels of poverty in the city of Detroit. There's lots of other factors, though, that aren't really captured in government data. For example, there's a a very vibrant shadow economy in Detroit or people who are doing things like doing hair in their basement or making cakes and pies. And then none of that money gets captured in the official records. And so there's some assumptions about Detroit that I don't think are entirely true because people don't understand the subtleties and nuances within the culture. But nonetheless, this is a huge problem that we're trying to encourage people to eat better quality food which cost more. And so we're grappling with that both in terms of the product line within the store. And so we're going to have about 80% what we're calling natural and organic foods, and about 20% what we're calling clean conventional. We really wanted to have a higher percentage of clean conventional, but we weren't able to make the performer work uh, with that split. And so we're conscious of that. This is one of the many contradictions that we're holding as we're operating within a capitalist system and trying to move towards a more equitable system. In fact, I would say that the number one challenge facing the food movement in general corresponds to the challenge we're facing, which is the challenge of how to make sure that everybody, regardless of so-called race, income, religion, gender or geography, has access to high-quality, nutrient-dense food, while at the same time ensuring that the workers within the food system are paid a livable wage. This is the central dilemma that we're all faced with.
2: So we found out that those people in the food system um, very much needed through COVID. They said they're essential workers. They had to go out no matter... You know, what? We didn't know how this uh, COVID-19 was being spread. Um, It was much and much fear in in me and in our culture, but they had to go to work. And as early on, uh, somebody on the show said they are essential workers, but they're not getting paid essential as if they're essential workers, and that's what you're pointing to. Um, No, we have major, major contradiction. Trevor, you want to add to it?
1: So right now, this is as of 2021, 73% of farm workers in North America are immigrants. How many? 73%, 73% of farm workers. So what What that entails, when we're talking about, you know, how do we create fair wages for Americans or, you know, people here locally within the food system, uh, one of the reasons outside of it we, we've uh, severely – lost that agricultural connection. One of the reasons is it's a lot cheaper for these large scale farmers in this war between big and small, it's cheaper for them to get cheap uh, immigrant labor, which, you know, uh, once again, you know, I'm not in the business of disparaging anybody. If, they're, if you're somebody that's found the opportunity, I encourage it, but once again, it starts to affect our ability to uh, serve our communities. When we think about 73% of the food we eat here is produced by somebody else, if you're one of the large uh, ag corporations or one of the large uh, processors, Purdue, Tyson, okay, I can pay this person over here $6 an hour to do a job, whereas this American is going to want, by, it would be fair for me to pay him 15 So as a business, we're in a, a so-called economic, uh, uh, economic crisis. Most businesses, 99.9% of businesses are going to pay who you can pay less. And so, once again, when it comes to trying to figure out how can we create livable wages, because ag is a very lucrative, uh, you know, when you look at it from a distance, it's a very lucrative industry because everybody has to eat. It's necessary. Like he's saying, it's more than just eating a hamburger. We're talking about nutrients-dense food. Uh, North America, at the end of the day, it was, it's was been envied for millennia because this is a great place to farm, you know, great land. So, once again, what, what are the things we can do on a grassroots level to not only uh, – Reconnect, but how can we create industries within this to where 73% of this food isn't getting produced from other people not in America, if that makes sense.
2: So you're, you're looking at it from a standpoint of farming, and Malik is talking about it from food a standpoint of food, food production. production. And Malik is talking about delivering the food to folks, and in this case through co-ops, and there's similar kinds of battles, large-scale farms, small-scale farms large grocery stores smaller co-ops and the larger grocery stores and the larger farmers make a lot of money and they don't then share that with the workers okay and malik is struggling with how can we get the workers to even pay more malik and that 1650 members how do we get more money to those workers that are essential we we have to eat and they have to be there to 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 give us the food the cashiers and the stockers and all of those folks. So how do we pay them a living wage? Uh, even better than a living
0: wage. A you know, we have to have a shift. Go ahead, I'm sorry. though.
2: No, go ahead. We have one minute before break.
0: We have to have a society in terms of how we see the value of farmers, because really most farmers, you know, most farmers in this country really have to work a second job just to maintain the farm. Most farmers are making some huge profits the corporations might be making a huge profit. Those farmers might be selling to them. But for the most part, farmers aren't making huge profits. Maybe big ranchers somewhere are, are, are doing that. So we have to change our mindset because in this society, for example, we see the work that lawyers do as being much more important than the work that farmers do.
2: We got to but- take our break. We're going to come back and deal with that. How we how we deal with farmers. We'll be right back. WOL, where information is power. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. We have Malik from Detroit and Trevor from uh, Kentucky. And we've been talking about farming and large farms against local farming and large production. If you talk about the Safeways and the large retail stores compared to small co-ops and all of these differences and before we took the break malik was talking about how we view farmers and malik i'd like for you to bring that up because of a very interesting point you were making
0: so maybe i'll tell a short story and say that maybe 20, 20 years ago 22 years ago i went to mali west africa and i was with a small group of people in a van. we were riding from timbuktu I'm sorry, we're riding from Bamako to a city called Jene. And on the way, we saw an elder on the side of the road, and he was looking very regal. And we got out of the van and went over and spoke to him. We had a translator. And after we got through talking to him, he pointed across the road to us. And he said, before you leave, you have to go over there and greet the farmers. And he said, it's those who work in the sun who make it possible for those who work in the shade. And so the entire society is dependent upon farmers, but farmers aren't valued. And so I don't want to devalue people who have white-collar jobs, people who are attorneys, people who are teachers, but all of them, certainly farmers are as valuable, if not more valuable, than all of them. So we have to change our mindset and change our expectation for what we pay for food. It seems counterintuitive, but really we're paying too little for food in this society. A lot of the costs are being externalized. Brother Trevor talked about the low wages being paid to the 73% of the farm workers who are immigrants. They're exploited. And so the cheap food that we have is a a result of farm workers being exploited. And so if they're kind of taking the hit in order for us to have true uh, uh, low cost food, if we pay them a livable wage, then our food would cost more. That's a very hard argument to make in American society that people should pay more for food than they're paying right now. But frankly, that's absolutely what has to happen if we're to put the true value on farmers and farming that we should put there.
2: Well, I would like to add one other piece of that in my capitalistic training of uh, getting an MBA. The other one is to spread out that profit and that's what the co-ops are doing. Okay. Those large scale farmers that are making huge amounts of money on the back of those folks is how can you then get part of that profit to go to them? So you got two things. You can raise the price or you can take that profit level and spread it out to those, to those folks. Uh, And that's again why I like this co-op model, whether it's farmers cooperating or creating a food co-op to go out. Did you have anything to add to that, Trevor? 79%
1: of black farmers earn less than $10,000 a year. That goes back to what he was saying. The majority of farmers I work with have a a main job that they work. 15% of black farmers make between 10,000 and 50K. Only 1% of black farmers, and it's only about 33,000 in North America, only 1% make a million. And that's going to his point about, it's, it's very profitable for those at the top, but as you go down this pyramid, it becomes an exploitative uh, situation. I love I love that story you said about your trip in Africa. I think that that spoke volumes. Just ones to work in the sun, to feed those of us to work in the shade. That's that's deep, and you know that that's kind of our whole thing. How do we make farmers the superstars? How do we make that a part of our culture to see the people who are producing the food we eat? As superstars. We give reverence to people that would lead us to get drunk, do all sorts of ungodly things that'll make life hard on everybody. But then the people who feed us, the people who put the blood, sweat, and tears into the land, are looked at as as some sort of uh, oh no, we can't honor that. Not just it's it's mind numbing. But as he said, until we're able to do that, it's certain issues aren't going to be solved in America.
2: Well, it's the farmers and it's also the workers in that co-op. How many workers are, do you have in your plan right now, Malik? How many workers do you see in that?
0: We see 48 new jobs once the co-op opens next year.
2: Okay. So let me talk about 50 to round it off. So you've got 50 employees working in a in a food co-op delivering the food to people. All right. And you've got that whole chain going all the way back to the farmer through all of the different processes to get the food there and then to get it to people to, so they can get it to their table. How do we honor all of those folks, the farmer and those folks? How do we honor them by paying them essential wages? They're essential workers. We all have to eat, and the better foods we eat, the better. And I can make another argument, Malik, that the nutritional foods don't cost more. And how I say that is if I go buy this cereal at General Dollar and I pay a dollar for it and it's full of calories, it causes it, it doesn't give me a lot of energy and it causes me to have a lot of health issues. Okay. So I can't produce and I may not live as long. But if I eat nutritional foods, yeah, the the cost of of uh fresh organic greens of some sort is gonna cost more but it's going to give me more energy. It's going to cause me to have less health issues, and it's going to cause me to live longer and produce more. So when I look at it in a global sense like that, I've come because I started down this road of watching what I eat back in 76. Okay. When I started looking at what I eat, what I put in my body and how my body reacts to it. So I, I don't know where was I 29 and now I'm 75 and people tell me I don't look as old as I am. I said it's because of what I put in my body. I pay more for it, but it provides more. I have much more energy. So I think overall, if you could figure, and I can't do that. I don't have that research to do those numbers, but that's my belief system.
0: Yeah, yeah no, there has been plenty of research that shows how health care costs could be reduced in this country if people had high-quality, nutrient-dense food. So, I mean, if you look at it in the global sense, what you're saying is absolutely correct.
2: Go ahead, Trevor.
1: One of the principles of sustainability, economically viable, uh, socially accepted, right? And so it goes back to this concept of marketing. Either we, Even with the co-ops, and we've discussed this before, it literally has to be psychologically massaged back into the consciousness of the population of what you said. That's very simple. Hey, you're going to pay more on the back end if you eat this bad food now. And so it would behoove you to pay a little bit more for these organically grown greens, organically grown produce. But that has you know, generally speaking, this would have been the role of cooperative extension, uh, your, your land grant institution, 1890s land grants within our community. Uh it has to be marketed to people that this is important. And you know, to it's very practical. You don't have to be an agricultural or nutritional genius to put two and two together. You know, are these farmers able to compete with McDonald's? Every time you see a Super Bowl. You're gonna see X amount of uh, producers or corporations that are, I'm gonna say poison that are selling bad food to people, but they have those promotional dollars in this marketed repetition. I'm gonna keep reminding you: buy this, buy this junk, buy this junk, buy this junk. And so, and that was, you know, once again, that is something I do believe. As as black people, we have the power to to to, to market. You know, we, when we think about the power of uh, hip hop culture, and I'm gonna to over top when we think about the hip hop culture of selling alcohol. Uh, selling certain clothing brands, and, and hip-hop isn't just the music, it's a culture. And so my thing is, how can, you know, moving forward, because we didn't get in this mess overnight, and so it's not going to be fixed overnight, but moving forward, I think about groups like Molly Like, there's some people might not even hear, hear the music, but they're going to hear the name, and they're going to associate this with food production. And so subconsciously, they might not ever shake your hand. Like, that was one of the things that drew me to you a long time ago, like, okay, this, he does music.
0: I didn't even
1: know you knew about the music. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it all ties together. This yeah. this all ties together. And it's marketing. You didn't have to go ask nobody to be able to use one of your talents, one of your God-given talents to produce music. And so there are people who are subconsciously tying together, hey, this guy's cool. You know? So I'm going to listen to what he says. We take cues from people who we who we feel like, okay, hey, they know what they're doing. They're, and so once again, saying that to say we can address this, it's not going to be overnight, but I do believe we definitely have to affect the culture of how we see food production. And then from there, this is how we can start charging top dollar. Cause we have people that have pay thousands of dollars for a bottle of alcohol. that probably cost the vineyard maybe $5 to produce it. But then I have this rapper in America telling me, you, Hey, you're not a baller unless you spend 1500 on it. And so somebody's getting that profit. And so once again, mentally, how can we assert this within to our culture?
2: So, Malik, I didn't know you were in the music at all. I didn't know that part about you.
0: Yeah, you saw all them guitars behind me, back there.
2: Okay. 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 Trevor, would you send Malik co-op popping? He's done three songs, and we're trying to figure out how to get them out. It's like, how do we take the music and get people out? He said some hip-hop stuff. And how do we get the message out in every – whether it's print, music, poems – how do we get the message to people about co-ops and how do we how do we take control over our lives and live a better quality of life yeah
0: that's a big question if i had the answer to that question i'd put it in a bottle and sell it to black communities all over the country but but there are some things i think we can do clearly i don't have the answer to that but marcus garvey said that disorganization is the greatest enemy of the negro and that remains the case we cannot fight against a system that has entrenched racism and entrenched classism built in it as scattered individuals. We have to to unify, we have to have organizations and institutions that advance our collective aspirations. There's no other way for us to proceed in this struggle for our freedom but then to do it collectively. And for some reason we seem to shy away from collectively, working collectively. We wanna do it individually because it means We have to submit our own individual egos and we have to subject ourselves to critique by others. But that's the only way to move forward. That's the last word.
2: That's the last word. We've got to do it collectively. Thank you, Malik. Thank you, Trevor. Everybody out there, we'll see you next Thursday. Please live and work cooperatively, collectively.
1: 1450 WOL, where information is power.